You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. the Old Testament book of Job, and we'll be looking together at chapter 2. You'll find this on page 418 of the Pew Bible, and we're going to be finishing up chapter 2 by reading verses 11 through 13. Job 2, verses 11 through 13, hear the word of God. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. As we have gone through this, we have learned that Job lost his children, his possessions, his health, and temporarily his wife. The devil accused him of hypocrisy and questioned the efficacy of God's grace. So God permitted the devil to all but destroy Job, whose integrity was on the line. And as his wife struggled with her own pain and grief, she became vulnerable, and the devil prompted her to tempt her husband and to lead him astray. We should not be too harsh on her because she was suffering greatly, just like her husband. But in the midst of her despair, she lost heart and advised Job to curse God and die. And this was a bitter pill for him to swallow. His own wife had given up on the faith, at least temporarily. It was a lapse, but quite enough to cut Job to the quick. Because you see, as you know, a man's wife exerts a powerful influence upon his life, strengthening him or weakening him. And when his wife withdraws her support, its absence can be keenly felt. And yet Job did not sin with his lips. It was a magnificent triumph of grace. But just when we thought it couldn't get worse, his three friends arrived. And I'm referring to the future dialogue in which they link his suffering to sin. And it has been fashionable, as you know, to criticize these friends for their bad counsel. And I'm going to join with those who condemn their unbiblical application of truth. I do this first and foremost because God himself condemns it. If we look ahead to chapter 42, it says, The Lord told Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you. And against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. However, 
When they first arrived, these men were doing the right thing. They did what no other would do, not even Job's beloved wife. The three were willing to sit with him and to sympathize with him and to speak with him. Scripture says they made an appointment to sympathize and comfort him, and these were Job's friends who wished to help him in the midst of his suffering. All three of these men were nobles, likely from the region of Idumea. Eliphaz was from Teman, a city situated on the west of Edom, celebrated for their wisdom. Bildad descended from Shua, the son of Keturah, living in the south of Edom. And Zophar was from Nema, probably on the border of Edom and Judah. And these three men were sincere believers, true friends of Job. And in the history of interpretation, I find very little good has been written of them. But I don't think these men were as bad as some claim they were. That claim they were. It's true they would badly misapply theology, but they were friends. When everybody else abandoned Job, these men came to console him. They visited him in his distress, and the calamity didn't deter them. And it seems they went to sympathize with him in a time of deep suffering. They didn't come to rebuke him. They didn't come initially to charge him with, with hypocrisy. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. They were astonished by Job's drastic change in appearance. So disfigured was this man from his boils that he was actually unrecognizable. Nothing in their experience could compare with his suffering. The Bible says they were deeply grieved over their friend's condition, so they wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads to express their mourning with him. They extended true sympathy to their old friend in his affliction. And these men were moved with compassion, I'm convinced, and they tried to help bear his burden and they worshiped God. They wept. Look what it says, they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And this heavenward expression of grief was accompanied with cries of anguish, deep groans of prayer. And for seven full days, these three men sat in silence with their suffering friend. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of true and loyal friendship. Oftentimes, we try to comfort others by filling the void with talk. But ordinarily, there is nothing that we can say that will bring them relief. Sometimes a clumsy Christian will recite Romans 8.28, very unseasonably. And such a thing may be well-intended, but usually it's very poorly timed. More than anything, sufferers just want someone to be present. They know and we know that there is nothing we can do to remove the affliction. But we can be present and we can express our love for them and support of them. And that's what we find Job's three friends doing as they visit the patriarch. For one full week, they sat in silence looking at Job and looking at each other. And this was the typical period of public mourning amid severe afflictions. We find Joseph and his company mourning seven days for his father. So here these men grieved with their old friend and publicly mourned with him. 
And their silence may have been due also to this, the extent of his suffering. Ten children dead in one fell swoop. All the possessions that he ever owned, gone. His health destroyed and the support of his wife apparently gone. I think it'd be natural to sit in silence upon entering the house of mourning. And scripture says that they saw his suffering was very great, far greater and far more serious than they had even anticipated when they set out. Anything they said would have seemed totally inappropriate and inadequate. And I also think it's safe to assume that Job wasn't getting enough sleep. Is that an understatement? His mental, emotional, physical suffering prevented him from closing his eyes and getting a wink of sleep. And anybody who has ever been sleep deprived knows how it can weaken the spirit. I think Psalm 88 refers in part to Job. My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. So here we have these three friends sitting in silence because there was nothing they could say. Severe was his suffering. And perhaps they were just waiting until he himself spoke. And maybe, just maybe at this point, their silence was also the effect of thinking him guilty of crimes. Anybody who suffered to the extent that he was suffering, wouldn't he have to be guilty? While harboring those thoughts, they were unwilling to add to his distress, so they'd keep it to themselves until Job spoke, if he spoke at all. And of course, they were poised to offer him spiritual advice. Providence had afflicted, and they were ready to give wise counsel, but the severity of his affliction led them to question whether or not they should say anything. What had he done? What had he left undone? What was his sin? And you know something? The devil is extremely shrewd and cunning in the ways that he tempts mankind. His cruel and heartless campaign against poor Job was extremely wicked. He piled one affliction after another on him whose spirit was being crushed, and the cumulative effect of these well-timed afflictions was enough to break him. It would not be long before old Job in chapter 3 would curse the day of his birth, and yet he would not curse God. He would not sin with his lips. And thus, grace would win the day. The work of the Spirit in Job's heart was real. And Jesus would not lose one sheep. He never relinquishes his grip on his chosen. My sheep hear my voice, he says, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So I think one of the things that we ought to learn from this is that times of adversity prove who are and who are not true friends. These three men sought to comfort Job in his affliction, and it did not keep them away. Whatever else might be said of these three men, they were true friends. 
They would be wrong in their assessment. They would give unwise counsel. But they didn't abandon Job when he was at his lowest point in his suffering. And adversity is one of the best tests of friendship because false friends will forsake you. When the sun is shining and the flowers are in bloom, the bees crowd around. But when the clouds roll in and the cold descends and the flowers wither, the bees can't be found. How analogous that is to false friends who in adversity cannot be found. But with true friends, misfortune doesn't drive them away. There's a saying. The saying goes like this. In prosperity, true friends visit only when invited. But in adversity, they come without a summons. That's true. True friends are rare indeed. But we're told in Proverbs 17 that a friend loves at all times. And some people talk of friendship, but relatively few practice it. They make claims of being friends, but in adversity, they're nowhere to be found. The bond of friendship is the commitment to seek each other's welfare. Job had at least three men whom his affliction did not scare away. And yet how imperfect and detrimental would their counsel to their friend be? And this shows, on the one hand, the importance of sympathy amid suffering, and on the other hand, the importance of receiving truly biblical counsel. Our dearest and earthly friend is an imperfect and insufficient counselor, and that's why it's so important for us to know the friend that is above all friends. Solomon says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The best friend that one could have have is found in him who died for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is the best and most loving and most faithful of all friends. He is a friend to those who have no friends. He loves at all times. We're told in John 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, the cross, casting its shadow upon the final days of his life, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And as a visible lesson of that, he washed his disciples' feet, an act of humble love. So when all of our acquaintances fall away for one reason or another, he's the one who abides. He truly sympathizes with us in our weakness and our afflictions. And he experienced the depth of human suffering and died for us. That's a friend. But let's also learn how true sympathy is not always expressed in words. 1 John 4, in this is love. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Died, not spoke. Job's three friends didn't begin by blurting out whatever was on their minds. It was through quiet groans and silent tears that were first expressed in their sympathy. And here at least they tried to emphasize, empathize with their suffering friend. They came to comfort, not by words, but by their presence. And so often, as we noted earlier, well-meaning people try to console others with lots of verbiage. They can't help themselves. 
Bible verses and maxims and other sayings, and so nervous and uncomfortable are they that they try to cover it with words. Little do they know how insulting it is to so treat a fellow believer. As if the person himself has not mature enough to think about Romans 8.28. We're told in Proverbs 10, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Often what the suffering Christian needs is simply the presence of a friend. Someone willing to sit with him or her without speaking. Ready to listen. To give a hug. And how rare among human beings is the sympathetic listener. When visiting one in distress, we need to learn how to speak less and to listen more. And the lesson taught by these three friends, I think, should be learned by everyone. True sympathy is not always expressed in words. Be present. Show up. There are elements of human experience that go deeper than speech. And such is the case with the Holy Spirit himself who dwells within the soul. Isn't this what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Too deep for words. Sometimes the Spirit's internal ministry is not in speech. It's in his influence. And often he'll enable a sincere believer to pray without speaking. We read in 1 Samuel 1 that Hannah was speaking in her heart, but no words. Is it too far-fetched to think that the woman was groaning in the spirit, praying as the spirit was comforting her with his presence? You see, it was the presence of the Holy Spirit who intercedes deep within the soul, and it can be the mere presence of a fellow Christian that helps most. Sometimes you and I, in our suffering, don't want to talk about it or feel the pressure to do so. We just want someone to be with us. But I think think thirdly, we ought to give thanks for the communion of saints in which we find this kind of comfort. Whatever else can be said of Job's friends, and believe me, lots has been said, they are sincere in their attempt to comfort him. And God joins us to Christ and gives us to one another for encouragement. It says in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Having been redeemed by Christ, we are members of Christ's body. We're united to Jesus Christ our head by his spirit and by faith, and we have fellowship with him. And on that basis, we have true sympathy and a fellow feeling with one another. We come to share in the joys and sorrows of each, one, each other, and that's the nature of brotherly love. Christ at the center and we at the circumference. That's Christian communion. And mark my words, it doesn't come naturally. It has to be supernaturally implanted. It's received from the spirit in seed form at first, and then it begins to grow. We're told no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. It's planted. Because you and I, by nature, are sinful beings. We're selfish beings. 
We care about ourselves. We rejoice in our own happiness. We weep at our own miseries. And if we're healthy and successful and popular or rich, we're happy. Our happiness and misery depends solely on our own condition because if we're sick and ineffective and disliked or impoverished, we're unhappy. By nature, we are thoroughly selfish people. But when the Spirit implants the seed of God, we begin to look outward. The welfare of others, especially our brethren, starts to concern us. And this is one of the ways that humans can be distinguished from animals. You might chuckle. But animals have feelings. They do. You pinch them, they squeal. But most, if not all of them, don't have a fellow feeling. In other words, my dog can enjoy his morning meal. He can endure a painful injury. But if another dog is suffering, I don't think Zeke's going to have much sympathy. It's for mankind to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's sort of like an electric shock that is felt by everyone who's holding hands in a chain. You remember that? Everybody feels it. In service to Christ, we sympathize with one another, and it's one of the ways Christians are distinguished from the world. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the badge of his disciples. It's what Jesus would have us be noted for, loving one another. The way of the world is every man for himself, and the way of Christ is we love one another. And you know something? I'm going to say something that's probably controversial. It's easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. There are very few who are so hard-hearted that they'll not sympathize with somebody who's suffering. But you know something? Rejoicing. That requires a high degree of virtue so as you and I don't envy. How difficult is it to be pleased when our peer advances beyond us? Do you not find it more difficult to congratulate than to commiserate? It should not be that way, but sin has distorted every one of us, and if he succeeds while I fail, oh, how difficult it is to applaud him. That's why it requires the new birth by the Spirit of Christ to develop it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? By sacrificing himself. And when his Spirit fills our hearts, we begin to reflect his character. He begins the process of crucifying that selfish flesh into cultivating that Christ-like virtue. And that's when we begin to notice the distinguishing traits of a Christian character. Slowly, but steadily, the self starts to occupy less space in our thinking. And we're focused more on Christ and his kingdom, less upon our condition. And like Job's friends, we can come and offer comfort. I believe we can learn something from his three friends about the communion of saints and I pray that the Lord will continue to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you for the rich truth of the communion of saints. We're grateful for this church and our brethren within it. We thank you for the opportunities you give us to express our love for one another and pray that that would grow so that Christ at the center, we at the circumference, the world might know that we are his disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.